0: There's a story making the rounds now of a man who was up on his house fixing his television aerial, and he slipped and began to slide down toward the gutters. And uh, he tried to catch himself, but it was his velocity was too great, and he went over the edge. But he managed to grab hold of the eave troughs as he dropped, and he hung there, suspended from the eaves, and. Uh, He couldn't look down, and he didn't know how far it was to the ground. And in his desperation, he cried out and said, Oh, God, help me. And a voice came and said, I'm ready to help you. And he said, "Uh, Tell me what to do. And the voice said, "Uh, Do you trust me? He said, Yes, I trust you. And he said, All right, then let go. And he said, is there anybody else up there that can help me? (laughs) I think that story accurately reflects the problem that is faced so many times through the scriptures, the problem of men who will not believe, who will not believe God. Just because of circumstances, we refuse to put our faith and trust in a God who has revealed himself to us as perfectly adequate and perfectly trustworthy and perfectly faithful. Now, that's essentially the story of the book of Ezekiel. The French philosopher Montaigne, uh, writing quite apart from Christian revelation, said, every man carries within himself the history of the world. By that he meant that history is nothing but writing in large letters across the canvas of time that which is already written in the confines of the human heart. The history of the world is nothing but the expansion of any individual life. And it's that story that Ezekiel portrays, uh, the story of of a nation. uh, A nation, in this case, in captivity, but Ezekiel traces the causes of that captivity and why it's in the troubled place that it is. So that this is the story of the nation Israel, and as such, it's the story of a man as well. And because it's the story of a man, it's the story of mankind, of the whole world. And therefore, these Old Testament books, uh, built along this principle, have extreme value for us, because... What is happening to the nation that's recorded there is exactly what's happening to us. And if we look carefully, we can see our circumstances and problems exemplified in the problems and circumstances set forth in these books. Now, as you perhaps remember, Ezekiel was a captive in the land of Babylon. He had been carried away by Nebuchadnezzar when the... uh, when the land of Judah, the nation of Judah, was taken captive, as described by Jeremiah in his great prophecy that we looked at before, so that Ezekiel is the first prophet of the captivity. There were two prophets in the captivity: Ezekiel and Daniel. Ezekiel was a, a, a uh, an older man than Daniel and prophesied through the through the first twenty or 25 years of that 70-year period when Israel was a captive in the nation Babylon. And the the story of this book is that of tracing the whole story of the human race and the human problems. And that's why the book begins with a tremendous vision of God, because all life starts there. God is the greatest fact in existence, in, in history. If you're going to think about anything, you have to start somewhere. That's why the alphabet begins with A. It could just as well start with Z or P or any other letter, but it's been chosen to start with A. And anyone who wants to give the alphabet always starts with A. And anyone who wants to think logically about life must always begin with God. That's where the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this book of Ezekiel begins with a mystic and marvelous vision of God. <clears throat> and the, the glory of this prophet Ezekiel was that he saw God more clearly than any of the other prophets. If you want to have your heart uh, set on fire by the revelation of the being and the character and the glory of God, read Ezekiel. He's the great prophet that saw the presence of God. These visions, by the way, are very interesting. Uh, the first, the, the book opens dramatically by this vision that Ezekiel saw as he was a captive by the side of the river Kibar in the land of Babylon. And he says, I looked and behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness round about it. And in the midst of uh, And fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming bronze. Well, that's a dramatic enough sight to arrest anyone's attention, isn't it? And uh, from the midst of it, he says, there came the likeness of four living creatures. And he describes these creatures to us. Each had four faces, the face of a man, of an eagle, of an ox, and of a, uh, a lion. And these four faces turned in every direction, faced every way. And uh, after he saw the four living creatures, he saw uh, certain wheels. This has given rise, you know, to the, uh, the Negro spiritual. Ezekiel saw a wheel way in the middle of the air. Big wheel ran by faith and the little wheel ran by the grace of God. A wheel in a wheel way in the middle of the air. And Ezekiel saw these wheels, and they were turning one wheel within the other. And as he watched, he also saw a firmament above that, shining in splendor. And above the firmament, as he lifted his eyes higher, he saw a throne, and on the throne, a man. Now, if you've read the book of Revelation, you'll recognize some great similarities here to what John saw. John also saw four living creatures. He too saw a throne and on the throne of man. And he too saw these uh, flashing fire and these strange things that Ezekiel saw. This then is a revelation of the greatness and the majesty and the adequacy of God told out in this symbolic form. Now all of this we can't interpret because there's mystery about the person of God. But what Ezekiel sees by and large is the power and the majesty and the ability of God. Uh, it's interesting that the four living creatures uh, setting forth the character of God are always described as having the face of a of a lion, of a man, of an ox, and an eagle. And these things throughout all of uh, history have been associated as symbolic representations of the same thing. A lion is always a picture of sovereignty, of supremacy, the king of the beasts. A man is the picture of intelligence, of understanding. A uh, An ox is always the symbol of servitude, of sacrifice. While an eagle is the symbol of of, of power and deity, of, of lifting up above, uh, mounting up above all things. Uh, especially relating to uh, the symbols of deity. Now, the interesting thing is that when you open the New Testament and you turn to the Gospels, you find four Gospels setting forth exactly these qualities about Jesus Christ. He appears first in the Gospel of Matthew as the king, the the, the lion, the king of beasts, the sovereign of all. He appears in the Gospel of Mark, as the servant, the ox. In the gospel of Luke is man, in his intelligence, in his understanding and insights into life. And in the gospel of John is deity. And these four then reflect the character of Jesus Christ. Now we can see that Ezekiel didn't understand this. He didn't know the application of that vision. But this is why the apostle Paul can say that when that he saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've been listening to Lambert tell about how there is a, an, uh, an immediate fascination that people have, a response to his word about a living Christ. That's because God reveals himself through Christ. And Ezekiel saw, as nearly as the Old Testament could see, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Now, this is the beginning of the book. And then as you trace it through, you discover that he moves quickly into prophecies that have to do with tracing the failure of man. And these are traced at great length. As Ezekiel watched, he envisioned, saw the glory departing from the temple in Jerusalem. The glory of God leaving the inner court and moving to the outer court and then rising above and moving out to the mountainside on the mount of olives and rising up from the mount of olives again tracing of course the actual literal fulfillment uh, that our lord uh, presented in his day when he moved out of the temple down across the kidron valley up to the sides of the uh, of the mount of olives in the garden of gethsemane and then later after the crucifixion and the resurrection ascending from that mountain into the into the glory above and uh, then comes a l- lengthy passage here in this book where Ezekiel is tracing the degradation of man. The result that happens when a man or men anywhere reject the grace of God. And he traces how God struggles with those people and tries to call them back, tries to win them, tries to awaken them to the foolishness of uh, turning their backs upon the glory of God. And uh, at last they go through times of, of, uh, of, of difficulty and heartache and punishment as God seeks constantly to bring them to their senses, to awaken them to what they're doing. That man is made to live by God. And without him, he only goes farther and farther into weakness and folly and foolishness and degradation and debauchery. And this is the story of this book. Uh, The prophet is called upon to display these in very symbolic and dramatic ways. On one occasion, he was asked by God to lie on his left side every day for 390 days. That's more than a year of lying on his left side. And then to lie on his right side 40 days, all of which was a picture... Of the 390 years that God had struggled to try to bring this nation to its senses, and the final 40 years when He, uh, when judgment was imminent and hanging on the, uh, right on the periphery of their life, but God's hand kept it back in its final form until at last he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come in and sweep the people away and sack the city and desolate the temple and take all into the land of battle. And as you trace it through, you see the reasons for uh, the debauchery and degradation of man. And ultimately, he sets forth the righteousness of this. The fact that uh, that man chooses to forget the greatest secret of his life. And when he does, then there's nothing else but what but to experience the results of that. If we neglect God, who is utterly essential to our being, and we refuse to give heed to his love and his grace, then the only thing left is that we experience the results of that turning our back upon him. And the the prophet saw uh, through all the the, uh, judgment that came upon this people, he even saw through it to the forces behind. In chapter 28, many of you will have discovered that remarkable passage, where he's speaking about the judgment on the land of Tyre and Sidon. And he speaks of the prince of Tyre, and behind that, an individual whom he calls the king of Tyre. And most Bible sc- scholars have recognized that because of the height of vision from which this prophet speaks, he's not only talking about the actual king or prince of the city of Tyre, the man who was then on the throne in that uh, seafaring city. But he's looking behind it to that sinister individual behind the visible things of Tyre, the uh, whom he calls the king of Tyre, and who is called in the New Testament those principalities and powers, those uh, world rulers of present darkness that manipulate things on earth and cause to bring to pass events that we see recorded in our daily newspapers. In other words, the satanic powers. And in chapter 28, you have a passage which many Bible scholars think can only be fully understood as it applies to the fall of Satan himself. And this is one of the uh, two passages in the whole of the Bible that describes the fall of Satan. You find it in beginning in verse 17. Verse 17. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings uh, to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries, and so forth. Uh, the reason for this is given... Um, oh, that is Isaiah 14, I'm sorry... You're quite right. This is the passage that speaks of the of the judgment uh, that correlates with Isaiah 14. That's the other passage that, in which uh, the uh, Prince of Darkness is seen as saying "I will" five, uh, five times. But uh, here you have the judgment that results as a uh, that comes as a result, and the secret, of course, is pride. That pride which exalts self instead of God. Now. Uh, coming on in the book, the, uh, the prophet turns to the restoring grace of God. And in chapter 37, you have that remarkable vision of the valley of the dry bones. This is again given rise to another Negro spiritual. You've all heard it, you know. The knee bone joined to the thigh bone and the thigh bone to the ankle bone and so on. And uh, this is the prophet. Uh, this is the vision the prophet saw as he looked out over the valley of dry bones. And the bones joined together at the command of God, but there was no breath in them. And then the breath of God came and breathed upon them, and they came to life again. This is a picture of God's restoring grace. And as the prophet is talking about the nation Israel, it's a picture of what God intends to do with this nation. That even though it has been lying now for almost 19 centuries, over 19 centuries, in a state of death as far as God is concerned, there is coming the day when God is going to breathe upon this nation and like these dry bones they will come together again and come into a uh, into new life and God will use them to reestablish his kingdom on earth. And in verse chapter 38 and 39 you have a description of a prophecy which the prophet saw in the far distant future of the last attack upon Israel and how that the enemies that attack Israel in those days, whom many Bible scholars feel to be identified with Russia and the powers of the north coming down upon the land, will be met by by heavenly forces that will judge them upon the mountains of Israel and these enemies will find their burial ground in Israel. And then begins chapter Forty where you have the introduction of the restoration of the millennial temple, the building again of the temple. And in this great vision, the prophet is taken through and shown the temple in in very precise detail. And he sees the Holy of Holies again, and the glory of God returning to it, establishing itself in the as the Shekinah in the glory, in the Holy of Holies once more. And it closes with a wonderful... Passage in chapter 47 of the vision he has of the throne of God, and underneath from the throne comes the river of God, sweeping out uh, through the temple and out into the eastern side, and down uh, across the land and into the Dead Sea, healing the waters of the Dead Sea. And uh, it's a marvelous picture of the of the of the Spirit of God. In the day of the millennial kingdom. Now, that's the literal interpretation of this. It's a prophecy of the restoration of Israel. But that's not the whole, that does not exhaust the meaning of this book by any means. If we read this only as referring to that, we'll miss much of the value and and all of the beauty of this book. For all of this story, you see, can be applied to you as an individual. What God does in a large scale across the history of the world, he's ready to do in a small scale right in your life. As he is ready to call back out of death and to give life to any man who turns to him in the midst of degradation and weakness, Uh, as he was ready to do that with Israel in this picture in chapter uh, 37, so he's ready to do with an individual. And you have a Beautiful picture of the of the saving grace of Jesus Christ making us alive in him, calling us back into manhood and womanhood, into the glory of what God intended for us. And there's also then, follows that, the picture of, of the enemies that we face and how God uh, uh, destroys them one by one as by faith we walk before him. And it issues at last in this wonderful picture Of the restored temple in man. Now, what is the temple in man? Paul in the New Testament speaks of us as the temple of the living God. Where is that? What is it in us that is the temple in which God dwells? We've been studying in our class before the service at five o'clock. is what that is. It's the human spirit. Our spirit was made to be a holy of holies. In which the living God dwells. And the secret then of a, of a full human experience, as Lambert Dolphin has been describing, an exciting life, a life of continuing significance and meaning, is a life in which the resources of the Spirit are discovered. And this is beautifully portrayed for us in this picture in the 47th chapter of Ezekiel. I want to close with this because I think this highlights the whole thrust of this book. Let me read it to you, just uh, a bit of it. Uh, chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. An angel is conducting him here. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate, and he led me round on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and the water was coming out on the south side. And going on eastward with a line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was up to the loins. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through. For the water had risen, it was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back along the bank of the river, and as I went back, I saw upon the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, and when it enters the stagnant waters of the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature which swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Does that remind you of anything? Anything? Do you read in that and hear in that our Lord's words recorded in John 7 when he stood at the temple and he said and the last day of the feast, he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive. These are the resources of the Christian life. And you notice what they are. Just quickly run through these. First of all, there's the, there's the essence of the river's force here. Look at the source of it. Where does it come from? He says, I thought, saw a throne, and issuing out from under the throne came the river. The waters of the Spirit come from the very throne of God, from the supremacy of authority the highest point in the universe, uh, the place where our Lord Jesus received the promised gift of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They come from a throne. And as the prophet watched, he saw that it took its way down by the altar. Look at the course of this river. comes by the altar, the place of sacrifice. And one of the great things that we have to learn as Christians is that we can never drink of the river of the Spirit unless we're willing to do so by means of the cross of Calvary. It's only as we are willing to accept the judgment of death upon the flesh, the natural man, and his abilities, and his ambitions, and his desires, that we can drink of the river of the Spirit of God. And then notice the... The force of this river, just a thousand cubits away from the start of it, it's a great flood, deeper than a man can walk in, already enough to swim in. And yet there's no river adding to it, there's no no tributary streams coming in. It's a great, gushing, mighty torrent of life just pouring right through the center of life and coming out from the throne of God. And as you know, as you read this, notice the experience of the prophet. He's led into this step by step. And three times you have this phrase, and he led me through, and he led me through, and he led me through. Have you ever had that experience? God leading you through? The first step is to the place where the waters are ankle deep. That's a picture, isn't it? A picture of a man who's just experienced a shallow uh, uh, sense of God's grace and power in his life. He's a Christian, but he's what the scripture calls a carnal Christian, still filled with bickerings and fightings and inner turmoils. He's never learned anything of peace. He's disobedient. He's fighting against God's grace every time he turns around. There's carnality and strife and jealousy and ambition and all these ugly things manifest in his life. Just ankle deep. A lot of people stay right there. But the prophet says he led me through, and he led me through until uh, a thousand cubits, and it was knee deep. The waters got hold of his knees. Have the waters got there with you yet? Have you begun to hunger and thirst and to pray and to seek the face of God? Here's a man who's not satisfied anymore with just being born again. He's hungering after something. He's on his knees. He's ready, crying out to God, yearning for more. And he led me through, he says, and the waters had come to the loins, up to the loins, beginning to possess him. There's less of him now, more of the grace of God, you see. Come to the place now where he's begun to grasp something of the power of God. Because the loins are always the symbol of power. The fact that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that the Christian life is lived. It's not my eager desire to do something for God and my consecrated zeal to follow it through. It's my quiet dependence upon an indwelling spirit. That's the secret. And then he goes on one step further and he says, he led me on and the water had risen and it was become a river to swim in. Here's someone who's utterly committed. He's over his head. He's out there where he just swept along in the current of God's grace. I think we had a vivid description of that a little while ago, as Mr. Dolphin was telling us, of how he is constantly expecting God to use him just swept along by the great river. And what is the effect of this river? As the prophet is led back along the banks, he says, I saw trees on either side of it, fruitfulness. The barrenness of the land had been healed. The river was fertile, and everywhere the river went, things began to live. Have you learned this yet? You see, all of this is written for us. John sees this same river at the close of the book of Revelation. He saw, he says, I saw a river, pure and clear as crystal, coming out from the throne of God, sweeping right through the center of the city. That's right in the middle of life. Have you found the river of the Spirit yet for you? You see, it's as we learn these mighty truths that Christian, the Christian life begins to make sense. Until then, it's nothing but a plodding, dogged, difficult path, a struggle to try to keep things straight. But when we begin to experience the mighty gushing torrent of the rivers of living water that is the flow of the Spirit of God right through the center of life, everything begins to live. Things come alive. And life begins to take on significance and fullness and meaning for us. And the prophet saw this and this closes, he closes this beautiful passage. One of the greatest things I've ever read, I think, is this description of the temple. Which, by the way, may ultimately be a picture of the resurrection body. Which is the new temple for man. But look at the last verse of the, of the prophecy. He says, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. <laughs> Vast. Unlimited. A great city. And the name of the city henceforth shall be, The Lord is there. That's what they call it. The, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They didn't call themselves Christians. They were called Christians. Christian means Christ, one. One who belongs to Christ. And as these people in Antioch looked at these peculiar people, they called them Christ ones because the Lord was there. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, I we pray that this may be our experience, that we may see this mighty flow of the river of God in our lives and understanding its its power and its grace and its depth. Commit ourselves to this so that there may be healing in our lives and fertility and, and and escape from barrenness and weakness. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful picture and for the truth that lies behind it, that these things can be our experience right now through Jesus Christ our Lord the one who is the fulfillment of all the image of God. And as we look at him, we are changed from glory to glory, even unto the same image. We thank you for these mighty things, and may they be true in our experience as well as our faith. In Christ's name, amen.